Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real-Time Enterprise channel on Vantic TV, our video and podcast series of interviews with thought leaders and practitioners in digital transformation and the real-time enterprise. My name is Blaine Matthew, and I'm Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Vantic. Note that you can reach either myself or the guest by sending a note to realtime at vantic.com, and we will be more than happy to follow up. Joining me today is Roz Raheja, CEO and co-founder of Heartwood, a truly innovative company that provides virtual 3D interactive simulations and guides for operations and maintenance personnel. Now, some of you might recall our earlier interview with Jordan Mayerson, the CEO of Hoplite. And so this is the second in our series of interviews with entrepreneurs who are bringing truly transformative solutions to the market. And speaking of entrepreneurs, Raj has received numerous Entrepreneur of the Year awards, including recognition by the California State Assembly as one of the finest entrepreneurs in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now that's saying something. Well, Raj, I'm glad to have you on today. Oh, thanks, Blaine. And that couldn't have been done better. It's uh, the, the $10 I paid you before was totally worth it <laughs> all that. But, you know, in all seriousness, um, you know, like I said, uh, I was telling you before, I'm in my 40s now, and I know that sometimes these awards are, are just a more distraction than anything else. Um, I've noticed my best and most fruitful work is when I put my head down, do some great things, and we get great results. That feeling, I just think no award can buy. So um, I appreciate the recognition. You know, I don't want this to be like a humble brag, but um, we love all that. But having said that, you know, I think the, the real work is the real work. So let's get into it. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. That's right. So I definitely want to spend a lot of time talking about Heartwood's solution because I really think it is transformative and very core to many of the topics we cover on Vantic TV. But before we do that, maybe back up a little more and tell us how did you get to where you are? How did you get to the point where you realized founding Heartwood was the way to go? Yes, that's, you know, sometimes these like you know, Steve Jobs once said, these dots are really, you know, you can really connect them super easy going backwards. Um, a lot of that happened to me on my journey of being um, an artist, really. So when I was really young, um, I really loved art. I was an artist by heart. Um, I went into architecture, actually, it was my first love. So I absolutely adored anything that was visually extravagant. So I thought architecture was the perfect balance between science and art. And it really, like, you know, hone the left brain, right brain skill. Um, as an example, like a one class would be to calculate the dead load on certain building forces, yet to figure out the dead load on a column. The next class would be like sketching, you know, people in charcoal. And that would really like amaze me. It would almost be like, you know, if you read the biography of Leonardo da Vinci and you would actually, you know, search for the Renaissance profession, it would be architecture because it would home that. So I love that, that mix of art and science. And, and um, so that's where I started it. And in the process of architecture, I actually just discovered 3D graphics because this was in the 90s, mid 90s and really CAD CAM 3D graphics. These were the first time in the you know, history of computers that they were actually 
able to play on regular desktops, not just as some big SGI machine or something. Right. And I was fascinated that in architecture school, we could walk through a building before even building it. So we were like the first generation to view that. And I looked at all of that and said, this is not the end of it. This is the start of it. If we could walk through a building before it's built, imagine what else we can do with 3D graphics. So my journey into 3D graphics as an entrepreneur began, began at like when I was about 20 years old, got into that, started something while I was in college. Um, and you know, I've done something in that in the 3D world ever since. So from that birth, um, starting from an animation company doing visual effects, um, I started Hartwood with Neil, my, my co-founder, and we went from animations to simulations, which pretty much in layman's term is saying we went from movies to games. So instead of seeing something that plays 50 times the same way, um, we love the fact that simulation or games, if you will, so to speak, gaming technology is very unique to the user. And I think for us, that was euphoric. And we said, this is a whole new world about to open up. Um, the world of interactivity, the world of using gaming technology, even if it wasn't for games, but the, the fact that you could be immersed in this environment was phenomenal. So, um, I think our first journey as Hartwood first started doing almost any kind of simulation and then we got focused into the operation and maintenance space. Um, I think for us it was and pretty euphoric that we could bring such a new school technology into an old school industry, right? So, um, you know, we'll go into industries that sometimes the equipment is 40 years old, right? When you talk about railroad or manufacturing or energy, and then we'll bring our technology in and, you know, it's not, it's actually more intuitive to learn this way because that's the way real life is. Real life exists in 3D, not in 2D. So for us, that transition was very normal and we're trying to bring that transformation into the workplace in these industries. So, um, you, you know, we're talking okay. about energy, energy manufacturing, uh, aerospace, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's well, thank you for that. And for, thank you for that background. And I was also uh, sort of like you part of that original PC revolution when graphics went off SGI machines and intergraphics workstations and onto the PC and, and it truly was a revolution. And now you've taken this obviously to another level. Now I'm going to do something that I've actually never done before on Vantic TV, but if you're, if you happen to be at a PC and you're watching or listening to this, I'm going to tell you to pause right now, this interview, go to hwd3d.com and check out the video on, on the homepage here, because I guarantee since the technology is about 3d graphics visualization, if you can see this run, uh, you know, you, you will be actually quite amazed and the rest of the conversation will, will really click for you. If you can't do that for some reason, no worry. I'm going to get Raj to explain the solution right now. And then after it's over, you can go to their website and check it out. So Raj, now back up, tell us now a little more fundamentally, what is Heartwood about? What is the value proposition? Yeah, let me, let me, I think the best way to start is uh, even before the value prop, let's tell you why we exist. Like what's our mission really? And the way we see it, our mission, the, the simpler we can state it, the more likely that we'll reach it. Um, and, and clarity is super important at these stages of, of growing the company. So for us, that, that clarity of mission is as um, We truly believe that critical complex information should be easy to learn, follow and master. And what we mean by that is 
if you actually go out in the world today and you have anything that's you know really complex, it's mission critical. It probably has a stack of stuff around it, like you know procedures, whatnot, isometrics, orthographics, very schematic engineering-based um, documentation. But the people actually performing those procedures are sometimes not exactly that. Um, they're either you know blue-collar workers um, picking up a, a vocational training or some kind of hard skill, or they are technical technicians, if, if, you, if you will, but they're in a hurry because they always are trying to get a task done. So what we're trying to do is say that if, if information in real life is not presented the way it's presented in, in, those, in those manuals, then that's not the way they're going to learn. So how can we solve that? How can we go from hands-on training, which is great in real life, so in real life, if someone were to teach you, he'd just take you and say, let me just show you this. So if I have to, let's say, you know, the classic putting together the IKEA furniture example, um, let me just bring that cliche up. If I were to teach you that and show you and you would just follow me, you'd just do it. But the problem is I'm not there with you all the time. It's just too prohibitive in many ways to have someone just follow you around and tell you what to do. So the other ways to just have them practice in real life. But the problem with that is that there's not that much equipment available. It's too far to travel. Uh, the, the training sessions are expensive. On the other hand, what we have done in the last 10 years, so-called the first wave of digital transformation was, let's put everything we had, all these manuals online. Now, what that does is it doesn't solve the real problem. It just puts all that, that complex information online. So it's, a, it's accessible anywhere, but it's not the way people learn. So this massive gap in the middle, that's what Hartford solves. We take visual, so the three pillars important to our technology is that it must be visual, must be interactive, and it must be portable. Visual because if without showing something, there's no point. If I just tell you what it is, you don't know what it, what it really looks like. So especially when you're talking about hard skills and complex machinery, right? So it has to be visual. The second thing is it has to be interactive. And this is where videos fail and we succeed. Because we see a video of someone performing a 252 step procedure, it is by no means a guarantee that you have learned anything. But if I make you actually do all those 52 steps, you'll learn. It's a great example of the flight simulator, right? That's why they built it. So we're bringing that whole interaction down to an everyday level. The last part is portable and that's what flight simulators cannot do they're not portable because they're designed for something else so we're attacking functions in operation maintenance and training where being visual being attractive being portable can bring all these three together onto a simple canvas like think about an ipad in the hands or iphone in the hands of a, of a, of a worker he's anywhere in the world and he can access this information he can actually do all the six steps or, or 52 steps and he'll say hey, hold on, Blaine, you missed step six or you did step six wrong, go back, do it in this order. So even before he gets there, he can practice it. When he exit out of that situation and a year later, he needs to recertify for some you know, certification, he can do it again there. So there's so many reasons why learn by doing brought to a digital canvas is just transformational, right? So it sounds like to enable these use cases, you have to build or somebody has to build effectively a digital twin of the mechanical system that you're going to be trained on or whatever the system is. And then you do your training on that, on that virtual uh, twin of the, of the actual physical system. Yeah. 
correct? Yeah, and actually, and actually you, you the, the name Digital Twin is, is um, obviously, congrats, you've always done your homework too, that that is the exact name you want to give it in, in digital transformation, is that it's the digital twin. And the digital twin will have a life cycle even beyond just training, because training is just learning the job. But that's just not the end of it. The, like, you know, I remember once hearing uh, this guy who's climbed Everest seven times and he was speaking to a crowd, uh, you know, motivational speaker and whatnot. And he said, when I'm climbing Everest, what do you think my goal is? And, and he said, most of you would say is to reach the top. And he said, it's not. My goal is coming down alive, right? Because it just doesn't matter if I don't make it down. And that's where the goal of the goal really matters. So a lot of training organizations could think that the goal is to deliver better training, but that's not the goal. The goal of the goal really is to have the task done better, faster, and without errors, right? If you can reach all those three conclusions, that'd be great. So the goal is to make the task be done faster, without errors, all that. So it's not just training for us. When we think training is just learning the job and then there's doing the job. So the digital twin strategy can move all the way from a training classroom and this could be on PCs, iPads, or even virtual reality like we've been hearing about. But when they finally go to doing the job, like on the job, this could be on their phone, this could be a variable, like in a couple of years, it'll be the right form factor for variables and all that will come. So we're preparing for that world where the transformation or rather the movement of this content or, or um, knowledge from learning the job to doing the job is seamless. So, um, so that's really the essence of what I was trying to explain in that sense that it's, it's the entire digital twin all the way to the last point of access, which is right before they do the job. Um, I have a saying that um, I sometimes say internally in the company, and to customers who come inside that training exists in many places. It exists in the classroom. It exists on the plant floor, like a factory floor. It exists between job sites. So for example, PG&E is a customer of ours. Some of their technicians in between job sites in a, in a pickup truck, pull up their iPad and actually do certain procedures right before, because they know in 40 minutes, they're gonna to get to a job site. So sometimes training happens in a pickup truck between job sites yeah. and sometimes in a trench two minutes before the task itself. So that's all what training is. It's, it's not just one thing. So I think for us, it's super important to explain to customers when, when they read about AR, VR on their own or any such new technology that it's not really about the technology, it's about the user. And in this case, the user is that technician. And we got to follow his life and see that we are really covering every um, inch of his journey. And that would be true transformation, right? It wouldn't be now, just technology. Now you talked about examples of uh, where the training happens even in a classroom well ahead of time, but then also the example where somebody's in a trench and they're looking at some device or whatever in, in real time. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing more of this happen in, in real time? as opposed to training well before the fact, or what were the trends you're seeing in terms of the real-time, more real-time applications of this technology? Yeah, so I think, um, you, I think you really like this answer because it, it, it wasn't the answer we were first looking for. And that's one of the dangers of entrepreneurs. You're looking for answers, right? Not looking for the answers that will come naturally. Right. So to us, the answer that we were looking for is for, from the, from the merit point of view of having like, uh, what's the right way to explain? Um, 
we were trying to convince companies that having everything available real time is the proper way to have it done to prevent errors. Well, that's all good, but really what, what ends up happening is the reason they think real time information is, 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 is great, is valuable for the company is that if you just build content for the classroom and it's not available real time, the ROI is probably one tenth because if you can save training time for 100 people or 200 people a year, that's good. You may get your return, but once you go into operational efficiency, so the way to explain it is if you have, you can train for low volume, high complexity, or you can go for high volume, even marginal gains. So marginal gains made over 15,000 employees in the field in real time have a completely different ROI than just doing something in a training classroom, no matter how good it is, no matter how immersive it is. So that's why the, the journey to real time is going to be a, a twofold one. One is on the pure merit that you must have information available real time for act, act, accuracy of information, for having uh, the task done well, but also for getting a value of all of this because digital transformation is expensive, right? It's, it's just, that's the problem. It's so massive a task, people don't know how to attack it. But if we can walk them through the ROI conversation, they'll walk much faster on that journey. So for us, the real-time conversation is, is, is also a dollar's one, right? It's not just um, for the efficacy of it. So Do you foresee you know, the continuation of that trend where I think even thinking about it as training is probably the wrong lens to use on it, where literally you've got your virtual digital twin that's overlaid on top of the real machine which you're fixing and it is helping you and directing you to do it. Yeah, you're learning while you're doing it. Maybe you won't need the digital twin next time around because you'll have done it. You'll have done it a few times. But, but as you were saying a second ago, when we get to the place where, you know, AR glasses come out of the lab and are, are more used by general industry, I wonder if it's I wonder if even thinking about it as training is almost too, yeah. too restrictive. Absolutely, I think you hit, you're hit a very um, topical nerve right now because everyone is talking about, the most articles you read about immersive technology or interactive technology, approach it from the view of training um, or they'll say it's either training or field service as if they were two separate things. That's just not the way anyone thought of it in their organization. When they think about training, it's training for someone to finally go do the task. And for them, it's that same worker. It doesn't suddenly magically change to someone else. So yes, I think the conversation can be, like the gateway conversation can be training, but very soon, but at least what we do at Hartford is we, we extend the conversation to um, learning the job, doing the job and retraining for the job. It's all of it. And that's where you get the operational efficiency and um, that marginal gains over huge volume. Yeah. The numbers are always in the millions and millions of dollars of sailing, saving. Like we've hardly done any business case where it's, you know, a couple hundred thousand because, mm. you know, once you're talking about 15,000 employees saving three minutes out of a 10 minute task, but that 10 minute task is done every two hours. So I'm giving an example, say someone like, uh, um, I don't know what's a good example here, but just say any routine maintenance that needs to be done every two hours and many, many such procedures exist. You have 15,000 employees, you do the math on even three minutes saving, that's huge over that scale, right? So. 
Yeah. Do you have a favorite example of a customer and you don't necessarily have to say the name, but where they truly, where they implemented the solution and it truly did transform their, their operations in some fundamental way? Yeah, I think the, I think the one that I've already mentioned PG&E and um, they actually won an award for um, the application that, that, that we deployed for them um, because they got a 62% saving in just the task itself and a 37% reduction in rework and what they call overpressure events. So if they overpressure a valve, the valve is not uh, rebuilt properly with, with gas, it can have an overpressure event. And you've mm -hmm. seen incidents that have happened. But the one I'd like to bring up is Norfolk Southern. Uh, Norfolk Southern is um, you know, a class one, what they call them class one railroad, you know, uh, premier brand in the railway industry. Yep. And what they've done is really something very interesting. Um, because of federal guidelines, they have to test and evaluate whether someone can do uh, something called an air brake test. You have to test for how the air brakes work in a, in a rail car. And this is literally done every time the train stops and has to move again, like terminal points, you have to do this air brake test. So it's something that's like, it's the frequency of it is, is a lot and it's, it's horizontal, like company-wide uh, mechanics have to do it, conductors have to do it, locomotive engineers have to do it. So it's very horizontal use case and multiple times in a week or a day or whatnot, anytime a train comes to a terminal point. So what they've done is that before this, someone had to literally walk out with another person and that person had to do the test and this person would just watch them do it, record the information, and then they would get certified whether they can perform the air brake test or not. And what they're doing now is they're applying for a waiver for the, from, the, for, from the federal, uh, from this FRA um, regulatory um, organization to get a waiver that instead of doing it in real life, we can have them in simulation and actually gather far more information than we could do before. And I think that's really important in the journey of digital transformation. A lot of companies think that the journey is to bring what was analog do things digital, digital, where we not do real life. So it's not just taking real life into digital. It's to do things we couldn't do before. So in this case, when someone goes does all this in the simulation, we can actually introduce faults that are just randomized. So it's not a it's not a cookie cutter test. We can introduce a leak here, a leak there, and every time they do it is dynamic. And we can collect information, or they can collect information where they went wrong. Do the test again, and it will randomize the faults again. So now they're doing things they could not do in real life. And, and I think that is the real journey of digital transformation. So Norfolk Southern has just started on that journey with us. Uh, we're building a whole set of suite of simulations to replace real life evaluation and save tons of money as well as really test these people. This is not just some you know, test out in the field. This is you know, um, very <laughs> randomized um, simulation testing. So. Very interesting and a, and a great example. And I have to ask, so I attend, I think like you, we attend a lot of events for, you know, manufacturing and field service and related industries. And I speak and I speak to a lot of folks at these events. One thing that I hear over and over again is when companies are trying to implement some of these new transformative technologies, there's resistance from especially the, you know, the older workers, the ones that have been on the job for 20, 30, 40 years, some sent in some uh, sense and and uh, you know 
just giving them a, you know, a virtual reality goggles and saying go for it isn't, isn't, isn't well received by many of those folks. Have you sort of run, run into that or run across that? And how do you think you can, uh, companies can overcome that? I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a very valid point. And I think it's not something you shy away from. Um, technology has on its own is not intimidating. It's intimidating when it's brand new to them. So for example, we'll sit in a room with 50 people and the first question we'll ask is how, how many are right up or down or zoomed in onto their phone today? And almost everyone will raise their hands, right? So it's not so much that, and these are all, you know, it doesn't matter 50, 60. In fact, you'll see that the 70 plus and under 10 years old humans are actually more inclined to use touch technology than anyone in between in the sense that in lieu of what else is available. For example, you give someone in between those ages a desktop and complicated drop-down menus, they'll navigate through it. But you give a 70 plus year old and an under 10 year old an iPad, a touch device, and they're, they're gone. They're, they don't even need you. They're on the move. They're, they're off to the races. And the reason is that technology is less in intimidating, not more. So the question isn't really about new technology, it's about is that technology intimidating on its own? So when you talk about VR goggles or AR headset, absolutely, these are new things, these are new devices. And, and, and this is where we, our roadmap to our customers is, first, let's figure out the touch points and the use, use, I would say the device uses that they're already accustomed to. So they're already using something. Tell us what they're using. Are they using a computer? Are they using a phone? Are they using a tablet? The first phase of digital transformation is just to deliver on these three. Forget about AR, forget about VR. That's not your concern right now. The first thing is to get operational efficiencies on the devices they already own. A great example of this is imagine Imagine Blaine, a world where Uber released their app for the first time and no one had a smartphone, right? Yeah. It yeah. Would, yeah, imagine the, imagine the job, like you would not envy the chief uh, evangelist at Uber if his job was to convince the world to download the app, but before they did that, they had to also convince them to buy a smartphone. Right, like, right. Oh my God, that would be a journey that would have no end, right? And that's almost where AR VR is today. And, and it's kind of one of the things that, I've, you know, it's, it's one of my, uh, let's say, uh, pet peeves. Like anytime I'm asked, what, what, what don't you agree with? That's the first thing I bring up is the Uber example. So I think it's, it's the order in which we release technology. Sometimes that's important. It's not just technology on its own. So for example, if you go to our website and see any one of these apps, and you see fingers moving across an iPad and someone actually doing that, it's amazingly intuitive. It's sometimes more intuitive than dealing with your folders and your email, right? Because it's just touching buttons, you're just choosing different options, you're actually just doing things you would in real life, except you're touching them on your screen instead of there. So I think that whole connotation of putting on VR headset with, with goggles and all, that's one version of the technology, that's not what we're seeing here. So. Um, we're doing many different things and VR and AR, all that, that the promised land is one version of it, one way to experience it. And that's not what we suggest going in at all. So, mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Well, it makes me also uh, think a little bit about gamification. And you talked earlier about how many of the technologies that you use were, you know, based or come from the video game industry or, or similar to that. Have you had any, any examples or any experience with clients literally trying to gamify their solutions? So that so there are some maybe built-in reward systems into the training or something that was purposefully meant to make the training engaging and fun and and uh, in some way like that. I think I think gamification is going to be very useful in, in areas of training where uh, I think more soft skills are, in, are involved. So I think anytime you've got, um, you want to change behavior per se, I think it's going to be um, really critical to, to incorporate some kind of gamification. It doesn't need to be frivolous badges and whatnot. Uh, but however, since our focus is really on hard skill training and you know when we go talk to technicians and all, we first, we did many uh, pilots where we had uh, some gamification techniques. And what we realized is these guys are really smart. Even if they don't have multiple degrees, technicians out there have worked with like their hands, their wrenches since they were young, they've worked on cars. They actually are really good with knowing um, how to do something. They just don't know when to do it. So in, a, in, you know, in 252 steps, if you tell them to turn a wrench, they know how to turn a wrench. They just need to know when to turn it. Like it's now, don't turn it now, put the blue gasket on, then turn the wrench. So when they're involved in the critical tasks, they don't have the patience for gamification. It doesn't work very well for them. They actually just need the information, the super critical information, and they need to get their tasks done. So one of the learnings for us was using gaming technology is amazing, but gamifying it is a whole different ball game that's overkill. And that's what creates the disconnect where they're now playing a game and they really just want to get their job done because a lot of them are paid hourly or whatnot. And they, they actually have metrics around how fast they do the task. So all of that went away. Um, we didn't really have to um, approach gamification in that order. We stayed with gaming technology and kept it as that. Makes sense, makes perfect sense. Yeah. So this, this has been really interesting. I guess one, one final question before we get to the end here. Have you been giving some thought to how maybe the advent of AI or machine learning technologies may play into what you're doing? Is, or is that still maybe a little far off? I think in terms of, uh, it depends what, what hat I wear, right? If I'm wearing the sales pipeline hat, then yeah, it's far off because <laughs> our first job is to just get people used to a, a digital yep. world where everything they learn is visual, interactive, and portable. The next phase though, like the other hat I have to wear is, you know, like the classic where the puck is going. And, you know, I think a lot of people know where the puck is going. So the, 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 I think the phrase is incomplete. It's, not just where the puck is going, but how fast it's going and how fast you're willing to move to match that puck. Because sometimes it's, you can let that puck go away and there's another one coming right behind it. Yeah. It's not always that important to match the pace of the puck. So I think for us, um, I think machine learning, if you say five years from now, and then we're already looking into a lot of um, um, plugins and whatnot within our app, for example, if 100 people take the training and every one of them gets step six wrong, then machine learning should be able to identify step six, bring it up to an instructor and say, hey, I think you're teaching step six wrong if 100 people are getting wrong out, yeah. of, out of 150. Uh, whereas if one person is getting it wrong, then the problem is with the person. So I think that's where the machine learning can, 
and AI can start delivering a lot of analytics that are useful. Yeah. I don't think companies are, they don't, they don't have bandwidth for that story right now. They don't know what to do with it. So I think that time will come, but moving too fast, where the puck is moving too slow, will just be a disconnect and um, they'll not be ready for it and they'll be intimidated by, they'll consider it noise. That data to them is right now noise. Right, right, right. makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, all right. So this is one of my favorite parts of the conversation where I get to ask guests what part of conventional wisdom they'd like to call BS on. Is there any, anything that comes to mind in, in that regard? Um, yeah, I guess I, I kind of, uh, it's such a great question. I took a little bit of the thunder away by, by um, approaching some of the answer uh, just 10 minutes ago when I, when I mentioned the Uber example. But the one thing I'd like to say is that you pick up any report, any kind of industry Gartner report on AR, VR, and they, they'll always say the lowest hanging fruit is the use case around training or, or field service or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then what we see is a bunch of companies opening up saying, I am AR for field service. And the other one says, actually, you know what, that's good, but I'm VR for training. And all of these fragmented things, when I look at all of that, I call BS on that because all of these are technology-led use cases. So instead, this should be problem-led. So this is the difference between a solution seller and a problem solver, right? A solution seller is, uh, the mindset should be is that solution seller will say, I do AR, so let me sell something in AR. Whereas a problem solver will say, what is a problem and what are the best ways to solve this problem? So for us, the problem is really learning and doing the task faster, better, with less errors. To do that, you're going to need everything. It's not just AR, VR, it's gonna be all of the above. It's gonna be a whole life cycle. So any one report that talks about AR, VR as one thing, to me, baffles me because it, it has to be uh, additive in the whole life cycle. It cannot be any one thing on its own because if you create a whole, um, it's almost like, imagine I, I said, I have this amazing thing called email, You've never heard of email and I'm going to release it to you. It's amazing. But to view email, you're going to have to buy a separate single use device that just does email. And yeah. that's all you do. Anytime you need email, you're going to have to put that, put that right over your eyes and you're going to see email and then you're going to put it down and say, email's over guys. You can't do email anymore. You have to put it on then you have to take it off. And at some point, once the, you know, once the pilots of the science projects are over, Someone in the organization, like a CIO, will call BS on it. I won't have to call BS on it. They'll say, that's just not the way it happens. If that email slash, in this case, that training content cannot move all the life cycle when someone's in the classroom, when someone's in a trench, when someone's, you know, doesn't have all the AR, VR, whatever variable, it's just not going to be there. And we're at the time right now, the Uber analogy, where everyone doesn't have the smartphone and you're trying to release Uber saying it's the next best thing. On what? Like, I don't have it in my pocket. So I don't have GPS. I don't know how to call the Uber. So um, we're at that BS little point where we need to get there before we get there. And that fake it till you make it is not going to cut it because you're going to get companies to give you 100, 200 grand pilots. Uh, and they're going to get super disappointed with the process and discard this entire technology instead of just discarding the way they approach the technology, they may discard it altogether. And that would be such a shame on the whole uh, transformation, right? Because it's not about that. So Yeah, makes perfect sense. That's a great one. 
So any technology or business predictions for 2019 or beyond? Uh, I have never liked that question. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, I think in, in relationships, in friendships, in stock, in health, almost anything else worth having in life, it's never worth going short. It's always worth going long. So for me, the question always is, like if you're, you know, what's, if you're dating someone, the question isn't what's the third date going to be like. The real question is, do I see myself from a value and behavior point of view spending more many years with this person? And the same way I view predictions, I'm, I'm very confident in predicting what's out there four, five, six, seven years, and we're going to get there. In between, I'm going to build multiple hedges for me to be wrong, and that's going to be fine. Like, I don't need to exit or realize my loss gain in this using the stock analogy yeah. as long as I'm going long. So, if I'm predicting this whole training, AR, VR, everything, if I'm predicting the overall life cycle, fine, and in five, six years, we'll get there. And if I miss a couple of trends in between, I'm just absolutely fine with it. In fact, I call it, um, if, you, if you know of uh, Jason Fried from Basecamp, he has a great word. Uh, he's saying the opposite of FOMO is JOMO, is the joy of missing out, right? And I love like, yeah, you'll have the joy of missing out few trends. We just need to get the major yeah. ones right and we'll be good. So, All right, well, give us a, give us a longer term trend then, Raj. That's yeah. good, I, and, I, and I totally buy your okay, thing. Yeah, okay, so longer term trend, I, I think, um, I think five to seven years, we'll see, um, we'll see digital transformation in old school industries, like I mentioned, be very cohesive. It'll be one thing. I think um, companies will go from, um, you know, they'll go from saying, I can't afford this, or I don't see a place for it, to almost going to the point where they, they might even question, where were you guys before? How do I do this now? I need to jump to this. So we're going to see, um, a very fragmented five to seven years where some companies will be just right on it and others will be slower and we're going to have to have a lot of patience I think in that journey to accommodate all of these moving parts. I think in general um, AR VR is as a company-wide complete deployment is still five years out that's my overall prediction. In terms of everyone using it every day I think there'll be um, these niches or, or, or business unit um, problems to solve that will have ROI on their own. And businesses can start solving that right away. Uh, they don't have to wait for five, seven years to do that. Um, I think beyond that, anything else I say would be, you know, just very super specific to our industry. So I'm just gonna keep it at that, that I think that um, for any leader, both in companies like ours, as well as our customers, patience is a big thing. Um, but again, a ship is not meant to be in harbor. That's not what it's built for. So you've got to get into it and willing to back, you know, get into the waves and get beat down to the harbor and move up again. So um, this is great saying, I, I love this. Uh, I think if you have 30 more seconds, indulge yeah. me. In the 60s and 70s, I think it was Carl Sagan who said this, that they were building a think tank on rockets trying to go to Mars and whatnot, and especially starting with just the moon and then later on thinking about interplanetary um, expeditions for the humankind. And one of the biggest problems faced that no one had an answer to is that if this is Earth and any rocket that they build today, 
The problem is any rocket they build in two years, whatever rocket they build after that, they'll cross the first rocket in six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you do? Do you not start? The, other, the flip side is you cannot build the rocket two years hence if you don't build the one that's six months out. Yep. So you actually have to build the one you will orphan. So you build a rocket, you send it with all the best intention you have, then in two years, you orphan that rocket because your new rocket will cross it into, in six months across the one that you built two years ago. And that's just the nature of innovation. And companies that are not willing to do that in digital transformation will just sit on earth and watch others do it. And the first one will sound like they're doing something silly. Like just watch, that rocket won't make it. Of course we know it won't make it. But those are the guys who are gonna build the two year hence rocket. So I thought that was just such a great um, problem to, you know, yeah. like a framework to look at a problem and, and, and not just sit and say, we should, that means we shouldn't move, right? Yeah, that um, is a great analogy and a framework. Uh, that's, that's fantastic, right on. Have you written a blog on, on, around that one? You should No, have. no, I love that analogy. It's a great, um, I guess I'm just, I just gave me more homework to do. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, on that note, those interested in hearing more of Raj's thoughts can follow him on LinkedIn and definitely check out his really interesting blogging that he does at the Heartwood website, which again is hwd3d.com. Raj, it was really a great conversation today. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Blaine. It was uh, as uh, fun for you, I hope, as it was for me. I felt like uh, this is my way of talking to myself so and, and getting clear on a few things. I, I already made some mental notes, so I appreciate it uh, a ton. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. And of course, uh, the folks out there can reach out to me anytime at realtimeadvantic.com. Thank you. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast version of The Real-Time Enterprise, search for The Real-Time Enterprise on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you are already listening to the podcast version of The Real-Time Enterprise, please leave a rating or comment and let us know how you are enjoying the show.